This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Every person is composed of a series of genes that determine everything from the color of our hair and eyes to how our bodies respond to and metabolize medications and our susceptibility to cancer and other diseases. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini series of Mayo Clinic talks to the incredible field of genes in your health. We'll discuss concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients. Topics will include the microbiome, cancer genetics, artificial intelligence, pharmacogenomics, direct-to-consumer testing, the ethical principles of genetic testing, and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your practice. Today, we're joined by Dr. Iftikhar Kuyo, who is a clinician investigator in the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at Mayo Clinic Rochester, Minnesota. Iftikhar's research is focused on the genetic base of atherosclerotic vascular disease, including familial hypercholesterolemia, as well as implementation of genomic medicine. He heads the atherosclerosis and lipid genomics laboratory, chairs the cardiovascular genomics task force at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. He's been continuously funded by the NIH since 2003 and is the principal investigator of the Mayo Electronic Medical Records and Genomics or eMERGE grant. Today, our topic is genomics for cardiovascular health and primary care. Iftikhar, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today for this absolutely fascinating topic. Pleasure to be here. I am very excited for you to be here. So let's face it, we've all heard about familial hypercholesterolemia. In fact, it's not infrequent for me to get a best practice advisor going, woo, woo, check (laughs) your patient for familial hypercholesterolemia. So if we can start Can you tell me and our audience, what is familial hypercholesterolemia? Who should I be testing for it? And when, when I have a patient in my office, do I need to start saying, you know what? We need to think about this for you. Why we need to think about it and how should we test you? Yes, thank you, Denise, for this opportunity to discuss uh, genomic basis of coronary heart disease with you. And certainly when we think about the genetic basis, we do see patients in our practice who tell you that they have a family member who has coronary heart disease at an early age. So we kind of, by just taking a family history, can do a simple genetic test to see if a person is at a higher genetic risk than others by asking about their family history. So that's a very simple tool, which of course, most of us and all of us actually should be using in our practice. But the wonderful thing is that we've gone from the concept of just family history to actually now being able to measure the genetic variants that uh, predispose us to heart attack potentially at a young age. And we can classify them as monogenic, which means there's a single gene that's involved and it has a strong effect. In fact, it could lead to 50% of first degree relatives being affected. And then more recently, over the last decade, we've seen an explosion of research 
identifying what we call as polygenic determinants. These are not single genes, but many, many genes or variants that have modest effects. But uh, some of us will have more than the average number of these variants, and that will increase our risk. So to answer your question about FH, this is actually one of the most common monogenic disorders on earth. The prevalence is about one in 250. So that's a pretty high prevalence for a genetic disorder. And it is caused by what we call pathogenic variants. We used to call them mutations. That's not the correct term anymore. So we call them pathogenic variants. There are three genes that cause more than 99% of this condition. And those are the receptor for LDL cholesterol, the apolipoprotein B gene, and then the third one is called PCSK9, which is a regulator of LDL metabolism. So about 80% of individuals with monogenic FH are due to a pathogenic variant in LDLR receptor. About 15, 20% are due to uh, variation or pathogenic variants in apolipoprotein B. And then about 2 to 3% are due to PCSK9. So they are transmitted as an autosomal dominant, which means that a parent, she or he carries the variant. 50% of the offspring are likely to have it. Or if a sibling has one variant, then a 50% chance that the other siblings will have it. That's really the genetic basis of it. There's a very fascinating story of how it was discovered. It was actually discovered in the 1930s by a Norwegian dermatologist of all people called Müller. And he found that he had these patients who had lumps and bumps in their tendons they also seem to have a predisposition to heart attack. And uh, eventually he found that they also had a very high cholesterol. So the manifestation initially was that they had what we now know as xanthoma. This is a collection of cholesterol in, around the tendons, which results from very high levels of LDL cholesterol. Then many of us have heard about this great story about Brown and Goldstein too. Uh, researchers at the University of Texas in Dallas, who then were able to find the molecular basis of this condition, and they were able to detect that this was due to these uh, variants in LDL receptor, and that led to them getting the Nobel Prize. And then the story goes on to the Japanese chemist called Endo, who discovered statins, and this was a really a revolution in treatment of FH and has benefited enormously patients with this condition. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of uh, historical background. Now, your next question was, when do we suspect it? Is that right? Yes. I guess if I'm the clinician in the office, since it seems like most patients will have somebody in their family who's had heart disease, because not all my patients have xanthomas, but a lot of them will say somebody's had heart disease. So who in my office do I need to worry about? Is this an age manifestation, early heart disease? Is it a gender manifestation? As an autosomal dominant disease, I would think that it's not so much just the men anymore with heart disease, but it's men and women. And presumably, maybe they're younger people who've had heart disease rather than older patients. And maybe the guy who was on Biggest Loser, who had the Widowmaker and, you know, got resuscitated in the gym, but I don't know. So when do I start to worry about patients or looking for this disorder? Uh, I think you answered your question in some way just now, but th those are the scenarios that you think about 
suspect FH. The first would be family history. And they say, doc, I have a family history. You know, my brother at age 40 had a heart attack. He died suddenly. Or they say, doc, I had a heart attack when I was 45 and um, I have family history of high cholesterol. So the cardinal manifestation, Denise, is high cholesterol levels. That's the cardinal manifestation. Typically, patients have an LDL cholesterol in excess of 190 milligrams per DL and often much higher levels, 300, 350. As you know, the normal level is around 100 milligrams. So they have almost double the level of uh, cholesterol, but it can vary from patient to patient. But typically most individuals have an LDL cholesterol of 190 or greater. So that's when you start suspecting FH. The second is when you add other layers to this. So one would be that in addition to having a high cholesterol, they had a personal history of a heart attack at a younger age. And then a third factor is the family history. They say, I had a family history of a first degree relative, a male or female who had an early onset heart attack. So those are three scenarios where you should start suspecting FH. And it's very, very important to do that. We can talk about that later because it doesn't only have implications for the patient, but also their family members. You raised the point of xanthomas. You're very right. We don't often see them anymore. When Mueller saw them you know, in 1930s, that's because there was no treatment. And these people had very high cholesterol levels and this cholesterol would de deposit in around their eyes. It would deposit around their tendons and they would go to the dermatologist and say, you know, look at my bumps here. But now in this current era where we are treating with statins, the xanthoma as a clinical manifestation is not so common. One thing that I see in patients is what we call arcosenalis. And that's a ring around the cornea, which is actually a cholesterol deposit. There are societies that have put forth a criteria for a clinical diagnosis. And the most common one is called the Dutch Lipid Clinic Network Criteria, DLCN. And anybody who has a score of greater than five, then they are labeled as probable familial hypercholesterolemia. And that's where we want to do genetic testing to confirm that. But one criteria that's almost a gold standard, you don't know, need to do anything, is the patient already having a pathogenic variant in one of those genes. So if you see someone in the office, the LDL of 190, and that's the number I sort of hang my hat on, yeah. but I always get a little worried because we know that's a calculation. Yes. And, you know, the triglycerides, I just had a discussion with a patient yesterday. She was so discouraged. She'd been losing weight and her triglycerides, of course, dropped in half and her LDL went up. That's the number we look at. But is there a total cholesterol that should raise tension or an HDL that's so low? We should think about hypercholesterolemia or triglycerides. Do these other figures or is it really LDL? that we need to focus on when we're thinking about familial hypercholesterolemia. And then if we do find that, how young do we start to screen these people or screen their offspring? Because many of the patients in my practice are middle-aged and they have younger people. And I know there are some national screening standards, but I think the, you know, the wheels come off when we start to think about these familial or genetic conditions in terms of waiting till these people are 35 or 40 to start screening? In terms of the condition, it's essentially a condition or disorder of LDL metabolism. So triglycerides are not typically affected. Now, because obesity is prevalent in our region, 
by chance, a patient who has FH and who has a lifestyle that's not good, by chance, they may also have an elevation of triglycerides and they may have low HDL, but that's not due to the genetic disorder at all. That's just environment. So we generally use LDL for uh, making the diagnosis, but certainly now there are equations where you can still estimate the LDL, even if the triglycerides are greater than 400. One can also measure it directly. A total cholesterol of greater than 300 would also ring alarm bells. But I would say that this is primarily a disorder of LDL metabolism. In terms of when to screen and when to treat, well, I think the pediatric guidelines would recommend screening children with a lipid profile, but it's not still widely implemented. I think if we look at Homestead County, we would see that only about 10% of the children or adolescents will have a lipid profile. And most of them have some risk factor like obesity or family history. But if we were to screen all children, then we would be able to detect these individuals. And the reality is because many of them don't have symptoms until a heart attack. There is a vast number of patients who are carrying this gene, have high cholesterol levels, but they're not diagnosed, which is unfortunate. So there's a lot of effort to increase awareness and diagnosis of this condition, including by the Centers for Disease Control, which has labeled FH as a tier one condition. So that would be alongside ovarian breast cancer and uh, colorectal cancer. So certainly in adults, there's a guidelines recommend measurement of lipid profiles, you know, when they turn adults and certainly after five years or so, every five years to check whether the levels are increasing. In terms of how to detect this early, one very cost-effective way is what we call cascade testing. So if we know that a patient, let's say a patient came to the office, he's 35, he had a heart attack, obviously that's very early onset, and we start looking and we find that he has FH, his LDL is high and he has some arcus. So obviously we'll treat him very aggressively, but what's really critical here is that we can save others from his fate by screening the family members. So we call that cascade testing. And what we would want to do uh, as physicians is we would counsel him about what the condition is like and why he needs to inform his family members. So we give them letters to distribute to their family members and then also to talk to their children. And if there was a particular genetic variant that was found, then some of the genetic testing companies will test that for free within six months, which is a great resource. We expect that half of the first degree relatives would carry that condition. Now, when it comes to children, let's say this patient's child is five years old. We would say around the time, just before puberty, around eight or nine, they should get uh, tested. The genetic test can be done anytime, but in some settings, you might just want a lipid profile and we generally want to do it before puberty because then the hormones start messing around with the lipid profile. And let's say this child at eight has a high cholesterol, carries the mutation, then we can actually treat this child at starting at age eight to 10. Pediatric guidelines actually recommend treating with a statin these young children. And the reason is that there are some data showing that disease progression is significantly limited when we start treating children at that age. Now, many are concerned saying, oh, we shouldn't put a child on a statin. It might impair their growth or their cognition. And there's no data at all that there is any effect on growth or any other 
aspect. And these children do well, and they actually, one can almost cure them of this condition because you're going to lower their cholesterol and their life expectancy is going to be normal. And there's data from the Netherlands showing that, that they do very well. So that's why it's important in this 35-year-old who unfortunately was not detected, but he can change the course of his children if we do the cascade testing. And that's why it's very important to recognize FH and then go after the children. Uh, there are colleagues, unfortunately, who say, well, you know, if he has FH and high cholesterol, well, I'll just treat it. Why do I need to bother about genetic testing? Well, we do need to, because firstly, genetic testing means they're at higher risk. And secondly, we can save others from early onset heart disease. I think that's really important. The message is they still need to be treated but the implications given the fact that 50% of their offspring or perhaps their family members, brother and sisters, who also may carry the gene may be at risk for sudden death. I'd like uh, to move on though, because you mentioned polygenic heart right. disease. And I think that's the future. I'd love to learn more about what you're doing with that, what we know about it now, and where you see that going in the future with the rest of our time today. So Iftikhar, what are we doing with polygenic? Because let's face it, if we talk about diabetes and hypertension and hypercholesterolemia with what isn't FH, that's where a lot of my patients are who are developing heart disease and having heart attacks. That's exactly right. I think the impact of measuring polygenic risk is going to be much greater than measuring monogenic. I think both are important because in the one setting of monogenic, we can prevent it in offspring and in, and in siblings, but polygenic is also very important. And I'll just give an example that there was a study where they took several thousand patients who had premature heart disease, and they measured both monogenic and polygenic risk. And they found that about 1.7% of those individuals had FH, but about 10 times as many had a high polygenic risk. So when it comes to the population attributable risk, it's much greater with the polygenic risk. So the polygenic risk area has exploded recently, and we are really at the cusp of implementing it in the clinic. If you take heart disease, we were very fortunate that a group of very bright epidemiologists set a study up in Framingham, a small town in Massachusetts, way back more than 60 years ago, and they identified these risk factors that you mentioned. And those are the risk factors you and I use every day to calculate 10-year risk. You know, we have these calculators and we punch in age, gender, race, diabetes, hypertension, and that all of that we owe to that group of people that did that wonderful work. The reality is, Denise, as you know, and I see in my practice that very often we see patients that don't have a lot of risk factors. And every physician I know, in fact, many individuals I know will say that I knew somebody who, you know, just had a heart attack or dropped dead. And he was fine, he was athletic, he was lean, didn't smoke. So I think that, that a lot of those cases are because of polygenic risk. And they're kind of what we say, hiding in plain sight. So if we were to implement this measurement, I think it would really refine our accuracy of risk estimates. So this is a really exciting field and we are going to actually start a project in community medicine, uh, hopefully with your help to give this risk to patients and then see how they process that information and how they and their providers you know, act on it. Essentially, what has happened is that we did these, what we call genome-wide association studies, and that began, I think, in 2007. 
And we started identifying these variants that were different in frequency between cases and controls. And we said that this variant, if it's different in frequency, it must be associated. We didn't say it was causing it, but it was associated. And over time, we've kind of increased the sample sizes and we started with one variant. Now we have nearly 300 variants that are associated with disease. So as you know, we in genetic parlance, we say a locus is an area in the genome and then there are alleles because we have one allele from mom, one allele from dad at each locus. So there are, let's say 300 loci that are implicated. If you were really, really unfortunate, you would have 300 plus 300, 600 risk alleles <laughs> if you're really unfortunate. So, or you could be very, very fortunate. You would have zero out of 600 alleles. So one very simple way of conceptualizing this is you count these risk alleles at the 300 loci. And if you do it in a population, it's like a bell-shaped curve, right? There's a bunch of people that have like an average number. And there's a bunch of people, like I said, the guy with 1600, 600, that's at the very extreme. And the person with the no, who's at the, the tail of the distribution. So I think uh, what we are saying is that initially, at least, we can use the tails. So if you're in the tail, like let's say you're in the top fifth percentile, we know from studies that if a person is in the top fifth percentile, their risk of heart attack is almost as high as if they had FH, which is very dramatic, I think, concept that you can actually have a risk just like a monogenic disease if you are in the top fifth percentile. But of course, these individuals are much more common than FH because FH is one in 250 and these are 5% of the population. So right away, you can see that polygenic risk can have a much greater impact. We actually did a study several years ago where we measured it in intermediate risk patients. At that time, we had only 30 loci, but we were able to measure it and we found that individuals who were at the higher risk were able to discuss that with their physician. They made a decision to start a statin and their LDL cholesterol lowered. It was a small kind of proof of concept study, but it did show that people, uh, patients and their providers can use this information in the clinic to make decisions. For example, about statin therapy, they could make decisions about screening, let's say with coronary calcium. It's an incredibly exciting area. And the beauty is that let's say in a few years down the road, you would do whole genome sequencing of a patient, which I think is where we are going to be heading then you can get information not only about monogenic or polygenic risk for coronary heart disease, but a whole host of diseases, all the common diseases, diabetes, hypertension, colorectal cancer, breast cancer, aneurysm, atrial fibrillation. And so you could actually have a genetic profile of a person for many diseases, and the chances are you're probably high for at least one of them. So let's say somebody was at high risk for colorectal cancer. That means that that person might benefit from a colonoscopy at 40 instead of 50 or breast cancer risk is high. They might need a mammogram at, at an earlier age. And you can see that the impact would be enormous because that test is very simple. It's going to be inexpensive, hopefully, and you can get information about a whole host of diseases. So I think that's a really exciting area that we are about to test in the very near future. Well, Iftikhar, it's fascinating. You know, we had uh, Dr. Lazaridis talk to us about the tapestry project where yes. they are doing whole genome studies and they're not reporting out all of the genes yet. We're uh, reporting out, I think, 13 targeted areas, but it really sort of stimulates in me the whole idea that, gosh, we have these whole genomes and can we apply your polygenome filter to some of these people? Because this small number of genetic conditions that we're looking at, the numbers are small. 
yeah. 1.7 to 2%. But what you're talking about is five maybe or more percent of a common clinical disorder. And I'm struck by the fact that as I think about type 2 diabetes, which is very prevalent, especially growing in a society where 70% of patients are overweight or obese. And we've talked about that that is probably a polygenomic disorder because if one parent is obese and diabetic type two, oh my gosh, if you have two parents, you might as well just go ahead and buy insulin now. And so that there are things we are going to learn, I think, through the methodologies you're developing within cardiovascular disease to say that these things work together. And as you point out, it's not causative, but it's associative. And then as an individual patient, for you, for myself, for the patients of our colleagues in the audience, is that how do you give the patient that information in such a way that they can make meaningful choices? I think Mayo's really been at the forefront through work through the Kern Center, developing patient decision aids. I just used one today with a patient to talk about choosing diabetes drugs. Were cost not an issue, what would you choose? Cost is an issue, what will you choose as your add-on? But I use them in the office all the time with statin decision aids. When I look at the statins who are not FH patients to say, here's what we can do to drop your risk of a heart attack. And somehow those numbers become more meaningful. When we say, I can drop your risk from 10% or 10 in 100 to 5 in 100, that matters to patients. And sometimes when it's dropping it from 11 to 9, they go, yeah, not so much. But that information uh, you pointed out, having the combined or basically shared decision-making with a patient, which I think is really critical as a clinician, is essential. As we move forward, things are getting more complicated. We're getting more and more information, the information out there about cardiovascular disease, which I think is still the number one leading cause of death in the world. But we have to have that information in a bite-sized manageable piece for a clinician to be able to take all of the complexity of the things you are learning with your research in a way to be able to share it with a patient for us to say, here's what we know about you. Here's what things we can do to help you change your risk change your life and perhaps the lives of your family members to help you make better decisions for your future. That's a great summary. I couldn't agree with you more. I think the point you raised are really critical. I would like to emphasize them. One is that how do we communicate this to patients? Because patients don't often do well with numbers. Their numeracy skills may not be the best. So if they're going to make decisions, we need to use decision aids, simple language, to communicate that risk. That's really critical if we want them to improve lifestyle or be compliant with medications. The second thing that I want to emphasize, Denise, is that patients sometimes have the concept that genetic risk is deterministic, that the risk is there, it's fatalism. I might as well go to McDonald's and have the burger because my genetic risk is high. What the heck? But in reality, it's actually very modifiable. And there's, we have good data to show that if you adopt a good lifestyle or if you take statins, your polygenic risk is significantly lowered. I think that's really critical as we educate patients and providers in using this information. Wonderful. Iftikhar, any other closing comments today in terms of cardiovascular risks and what we can look forward to in terms of the genomics for the future for cardiovascular health? I think we are at the cusp of an incredibly exciting period. We've been 
doing a lot of research and the fruits of that research have come to bear. I think we will be able to better predict the risk of heart attacks. We'll be able to prevent early onset heart attacks by screening for FH. And for the other commoner forms of the heart attack, we can use polygenic risk scores to intervene earlier. I think that this will help us to reduce coronary heart disease as a leading killer in this country. And I'm incredibly excited and appreciate the opportunity to describe some of these advances. Thank you so much for your time. Today, we've been joined by Dr. Iftikhar Kulo, a Mayo Clinic consultant in cardiovascular medicine, and one of our leaders in actually looking at the genomics of cardiovascular disease. Thanks for joining us today, Iftikhar. Thank you, Denise, my pleasure. Today, we've been talking about genomics for cardiovascular health in primary care with Dr. Iftikhar Kulo. Thank you for your time. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. See, your genes really do matter, not only for you, but for your family. Have a great day. Thank you.